So we are continuing the series that we started last week. We're going to be spending a few weeks in the book of Isaiah. And uh, we started last week as we looked at, at chapter 1 and, and saw how chapter 1 of Isaiah is an overview of the entire book. It gives us kind of a, an outline and, and, and covers most of all the topics that are involved uh, with, within the book. But yet it is a long book. As we, if you've looked at it and see it's there's uh, over 60 chapters in Isaiah. We're not going to be able to go chapter by chapter, but, but yet there's lots of powerful things in Isaiah. And so we are kind of taking a, a flyover approach to it. We're hitting all of the, all the, the, the big stories, and, and as we look at those, um, but we started uh, last week with the very first verse, which is where I want to pick up again this morning. Um, Isaiah 1.1 tells us that these are the visions that Isaiah, son of Amoz, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. He saw these visions during the years when Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah were kings of Judah. Again, we saw it just like last week. We see that, again, what we have here in the book of Isaiah is these visions of Isaiah. Isaiah was a prophet of God. And a prophet was somebody who heard from God, whether it was through visions or messages from God or whatever. They would receive communication from God. And then their job as a prophet was to then pass that on to the attended people or the audience. Or this, and explain this, this certain situation. And again, prophecies comes in, in all kinds of different forms, but yet their job, again, was to represent God to a specific group of people. And we see here, again, Isaiah as a prophet, um, he received these messages and passed these on to the entire nation of Israel, right? To Judah and Jerusalem. And, and so these, um, this is a big audience that Isaiah was speaking to. And he got lots of different messages from God and, and expanded lots of time. As we see here, just it's described these four different kings, which is, is a very specific amount of time. And yet we see, again, Isaiah was not in his role as prophet for the entire time of all four of these kings. It was really at the end of Uzziah um, and at the beginning of Hezekiah's reign. And, and most scholars believe that, that Isaiah's ministry spanned about 40 years. But over those 40 years, he got all kinds of interesting messages, lots of, of different things about, about current things that were going on for Israel, about the future, and about where God was, was taking Israel, and even God's plan of redemption. And, and, and we saw last week how, how even through chapter 1, there's, there's this, this broad spectrum of topics, and there are some very challenging perspectives, and, and things that we heard, again, even just from last week. And now as we dive into the, the, the chapters of the book and dive deeper into it, we're going to dive deeper into each of these topics and, and just see how, again, these messages and situations that God presented to Isaiah and, and how he presented them to Israel. And, and yet, as I'm studying through the book, if you've read through it yourself, you probably notice that there are some striking parallels between where God was doing with Israel and, and with our world today. And as we see those things, we understand that in the middle of Isaiah, there's this complex weave of different stories and judgments and victories and future predictions. There are some huge highlights and very famous passages within Isaiah as we are going to examine and study those deeper through these next few weeks. Also, the book of Isaiah uses a lot of different literary forms. There's poetry. There's narrative, there's historical record, there's allegory, there's, there's lots of, of different types of writing in the book of Isaiah. And, and as we see um, all of these pulled together, 
right, to, to show the, the, not just the complexity of the book, but also the relevance. There's a lot to be learned as we study this major prophet book of Isaiah. Now today, we are going to skip forward up to chapter 5. And today we are going to be looking at one of the most famous passages of Isaiah. And in fact, that this vision that Isaiah has is actually at the beginning of chapter 6. But before we can jump into that passage, we have to look at some of the backstory. See what God is setting up here in order for us to understand what's happening at the beginning of 6. So we're going to start at the beginning of chapter 5. So if you have your Bible with you, I invite you to open with me to Isaiah chapter 5. If you're here with us in person and don't have your own Bible, there are Bibles provided for you in the seats that you're welcome to use. Uh, And you'll notice the page number on the outline of where you can find this passage in those Bibles. So we're going to look here at the first seven verses of chapter 5. So Isaiah chapter 5, starting at verse 1. It says, And now I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a rich and fertile hill. He plowed the land, cleared its stones, and planted it with the best vines. In the middle, he built a watchtower and carved a winepress in the nearby rocks. And then he waited for a harvest of sweet grapes, but the grapes that grew were bitter. Now, you people of Jerusalem and Judah, you judge between me and my vineyard. What more could I have done for my vineyard that I have not already done? When I expected sweet grapes, why did my vineyard give me bitter grapes? Now let me tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will tear down its hedges and let it be destroyed. I will break down its walls and let the animals trample it. I will make it a wild place where the vines are not pruned and the ground is not hoed, a place overgrown with briars and thorns. I will command the clouds to drop no rain on it. The nation of Israel is the vineyard of the Lord of heaven's armies. The people of Judah are his pleasant garden. He expected a crop of justice, but instead he found oppression. He expected to find righteousness, but instead he heard cries of violence. So as we read these these verses, we we see again in in the very first verses, it's presented as a song. and, And and the reality is it doesn't really tell us about the tune or, or about you know, the reasons for it being a song. It, it doesn't tell us the genre of the music or how we should sing it. But as we read the lyrics of this song, it makes me wonder if it might be a country song. And as we see that it's, it's not... Now, if you like country music, don't, don't send me an email. It's okay. Like, I, I, the, I, the, but we see the lyrics are not really very uplifting, are they? And yet, as we read the song, we, we realize that this song is an allegory. And an allegory is a type of writing where, where you tell a story, but yet there's a deeper meaning. Similar to a parable, something that Jesus taught a lot, and we see a lot in the New Testament. And, and yet, we see this allegory of a song played out here in, in Isaiah. And then, in the following verses, we see that, that God kind of, kind of shows us the deeper into this, this story of of this vineyard, right, and, and God's plan for Israel. And we see in, in verse, verses 3 and 4 that God, God lays out the reality of the current situation. And it's not a good one. That's right, so when we see where God says, he, again, he prepared this vineyard, he did all these things, and, and, and he, he set Israel up for success. I mean, Israel was his, his holy nation, his his. You know, a nation set apart, they were different, they were his chosen people, and, and God had great, 
grand expectations for Israel and, and huge hopes for them. And, and yet we see here in verse 4, when God steps back at the result of this, and he says, what more could I have done for my vineyard that I have not already done? When I expected sweet grapes, why did my vineyard give me bitter grapes? I mean, God is sitting back and kind of asking this rhetorical question. And again, how did we end up here? I mean, I, I did so much for you, Israel. I set you up for success. And, and yet God had big expectations for the nation. And, and those expectations were not met. As God kind of presents this, this rhetorical question here about, again, what more could I have done? I, I set up this, this, this vineyard in the right way and, and everything was in place. And, and again, we, we can go back and look through the history of Israel and all the different things that God had done for the nation. I mean, he established this covenant with Abraham and, and says, we will establish you as a nation. He revealed the law through Moses. He delivered them to the promised land through Joshua. He gave them their desire for an earthly king with Saul and then King David. He raised up prophets to, to call for a change, and, and yet nothing ever changed. God had done a lot for Israel. In fact, when we see in, in this stanza of, of the song, right, we see God's perspective. And God's perspective was, I did my part to produce sweet grapes, but they still turned out bitter. And God is sitting back and saying, I did my part. I, I held up my end of the deal. Because a covenant is an agreement between two parties. And, and if both parties don't do their part, then the covenant doesn't work. And God is sitting back and saying, I did my part. I, I did everything that you needed for, for, the, for the crop to be good. Right? For, for strong results coming out of this nation and and yet, they still turn out bitter. And as, as we see this perspective from God, we, we also can learn some important lessons right, from this song. Because as we see God's perspective, like again, my lesson that we can learn from this is that God has done way more for me than I realize. And we can step back and, and look at not just the nation of Israel, but even in our own lives, and, and realize that it's just that God has been there, that God hasn't given up, that, that God has, has been a good father, right? That he's provided for us in ways we don't even think about or acknowledge. That God does way more for us than we give him credit for. And yet so many times we can look at, whether it's been in my own faith journey or or in our world, and, and realize that, that God gets blamed for a lot of things that aren't really his fault. We sit back and like, God, this, this turned out horrible. This is bad. Like, how, again, we, the grapes are bitter. Like, this has to be God's fault. And we just kind of proverbially shake our finger at God and be like, God, why didn't you do that? Or why did you not do that? And, and send to, to, to blame God about different things that that really God's sitting back going like, you know what? Like, that's not my fault. I, I, I did loss for you that you didn't even recognize. I set you up for success. 
And then we see as the, as the song continues and as we lead through the, the next verses, right, then we see in, at the, the, last, or the first part of verse 5 where, where God then says, now let me tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. He's like, so now that we're here, now that we realize that the, that the grapes are bitter, that the, again, the expectations haven't been met, we have not found success, now, now here's going to be the next season. And God's perspective for this next season is, is that now I will remove my protection. It's one of these moments where God is sitting back and saying, like, now you're going to realize what I really have been doing for you when I stop doing it. It's one of those things that you don't really know what you have until, until you lose it. And God says, now as we move into this nest, because now I see, again, the grapes are bitter. And this is not a good place, but, but this is where God sits back and says, okay, now, now you're going to see what life might really be like without me. And again, this is not for lack of effort on God's side, but this is just where the nation is at this place where, where they have pushed God away. And, and God says, all right, I will, I'll give you what, what you want. You don't want me in your life, and, and so then I'll, I'll grant you that, that request. And, and here Isaiah finds Israel at the, this similar place that Israel's been at before. I mean, we've seen this, this, this cycle play out in the nation of Israel over and over again as we look through their history. I mean, where they, they come really close to God, and then they, they drift, and they get really far away from God. And, and then God brings a, a, new, a new season, right? Whether it's a, an earthly king or, or prophets or whatever it would be, and, and they come back to God, and they walk with him for a while, and, and there, there's just this, this up and down cycle, and yet here Isaiah finds himself with the nation of Israel where they're in a very deep valley. But this is not a new thing for the nation of Israel. We, we see kind of throughout the Old Testament where, again, as they're on this roller coaster ride, that we end up in this place that, that, that Israel ends up at several different times throughout the Old Testament. And one example is in Judges 21-25, where it says, In those days Israel had no king. All the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. And this is that moment when God says, okay, I will give you what you want. But I can already tell you, you're not going to like the result. Right, that's not a good place. And, and I've been protecting you. I've been doing all these things for you. And, and yet, here you go. Right, and, and our lesson that we can learn from this is, is realizing that getting what I want isn't always a blessing. Right, getting what I want isn't always a blessing. And sometimes the, the best thing that God does for us is telling us no. <laughs> you, don't, you don't know what you're asking. You don't know what that's going to cause. And, and, and God, God does more for us than we even realize. And Because the reality is there's, there's a lot of prayers that I've prayed over my life turn, lifetime and faith journey that I'm very thankful that God didn't answer with a yes, right? He didn't give me what I asked for. And that's through God's protection because the reality is God's a good father. Right? And, and yet we see in this moment, kind of this perspective, he's sitting back just like a good parent when you're, you're asking the question, do I, do I continue to protect them or do I let them 
realize the consequences of their own decisions? Right? Do I continue to pull them away and slap their hand, or do I let them touch the hot stove? Because they, they'll probably only do it once. And yet God is sitting back looking at Israel and being like, man, you've done it more than once. I'm trying to get you to understand this, and yet it, it just, we continue in this cycle. And then we get to verse 7, which is the explanation of the allegory. Right, where the, the song ends and, and God you know, reveals right, the real meaning of, of the song. And in verse 7, it says, The nation of Israel is the vineyard of the Lord of heaven's armies. The people of Judah are his pleasant garden. He expected a crop of justice, but instead he found oppression. He expected to find righteousness, but instead he heard cries of violence. And as we look at this song and the, just the lessons that we take from it, and again, the bigger picture concept that, that we can glean out of this, it was, it was very important for Israel at this time when Isaiah is giving this message, and it's also very important for us to know and to realize this concept. And that is that you have to know where you are before you can go anywhere new. You have to know where you are before you can go anywhere new. But we, we have to be able to even have our eyes open to the reality of our own situation. Because if, if we don't know where we are is bad, then we're never going to want to go anywhere new. And, and as, as God opens our eyes to, to what's really going on, right, to, to maybe the, the real intention of that person, or, or how much you've been deceived, or, or how my own choices have led me down this path of destruction. And, and when God opens our eyes to that fact, it, it can be a very unpleasant experience. It can be one that feels like we're taking a step backwards. And yet God might be sitting back and like, yes, but until you realize where you really are, I can never take you somewhere new. Because the, the reality is, if, if we don't take a realistic examination of where we are and how we got there, in realizing that it's not a good place, if we don't do the tough work of, uh, of that examination and, and of humbling and accepting the the weight of our own choices. And even if we don't do that, then even if we get rescued, we will inevitably end up in the same spot again. We can get pulled out, and yet through those same similar decisions, we just end up in, just in the same hole again. If you don't realize where you are, you'll never go somewhere new. As you think about this idea and this concept and, and even how it plays out in our lives, I, I saw this, this video that went viral on social media this last week that I think illustrates this whole concept extremely well. And, and so we're going we're gonna to watch it. You know, being called a sheep in Scripture maybe is not a, 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 a good thing. As you see, if we don't acknowledge where we are, 
we are inevitably going to end up in the same hole again. Even if God pulls us out, even if we get rescued, right? I mean, and again, I watch this video and think about how many times have I been that sheep? And we see that again, God is is trying to to show Israel, right, about not just where they are, but, but how they got there. And realize how miserable it really is. So that we can go somewhere new. So that we can truly be set free. In fact, that's one of the more famous statements of Jesus, isn't it? As he said, because if you know my command, then you will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. And if we realize where we are, then God can take us somewhere new. And not just so I can get all excited and jump right back in the same hole. Right? But literally set us free. Through real change, through real transformation. And, and, and as, as this, the text continues beyond this, the, the rest of chapter 5, verses 8 through 30, is a detailed description of how bad it is and how much worse it's going to get before it gets better. And it's a bitter pill to swallow. And yet, this passage of of realizing where they are sets up what happens at the beginning of chapter 6. And so now we're going to look at this this vision that Isaiah has in Isaiah chapter 6. We're going to pick up here at verse 1. Where it says, it says, It was in the year that King Uzziah died that I saw the Lord. He was sitting on a lofty throne, And the train of his robe filled the temple. Attending him were mighty seraphim, each having six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. And they were calling out to each other, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of heaven's armies. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Their voices shook the temple to its foundations, and the entire building was filled with smoke. And then I said, it's all over. I am doomed, for I am a sinful man. I have filthy lips, and I live among a people with filthy lips. Yet I have seen the king, the Lord of heaven's armies. And then one of the seraphim flew to him with a burning coal that he had taken from the altar with a pair of tongs. And he touched my lips with it and said, see, this coal has touched your lips. Now your guilt is removed and your sins are forgiven. And then I heard the Lord asking, whom should I send as a messenger to this people? Who will go for us? And I said, here I am, send me. Now as we see this this description of of his vision that Isaiah has, as as he finds himself literally in the throne room of God, Right? Sitting in God's presence, and, and, and he's, he sees this, you know, the throne, and God sitting on his throne, and again, the robe, and the presence, and the smoke, and, and the, the seraphim flying around, and these, just all this going on, and, and yet he, he sees this vision of, of finding himself in God's presence. Again, we see these, this description, this is one place, and there's many places in Scripture that describe these kind of heavenly beings, these seraphim with all their wings and you know, all this crazy stuff going on. And, 
and, and this, is, this is a crazy picture. And yet it's a glimpse into the heavenly realms. And even in that, we hear what these seraphim are saying, right? They're, they're, they're saying this over and over again, this holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, like the Lord of heaven's armies. And, and again, we, they're just declaring you know, God's holiness and, and, and in worship as they're in his presence. And again, anytime in scripture, when you see things repeated three times, it means that it's like the most it can be. Right? It's why we repeat holy three times, because God is completely holy. He is the epitome of purity. And yet God's presence, as we see in that, is that um, Isaiah realized in this moment that, that he's in God's presence and that this is not a good thing for him. But even though he, he's excited to be there and to, to have this vision and to be in God's presence, he he also is completely aware of his own impure condition. As he's exposed to God's purity and holiness, he, he becomes very self-aware very quickly of his own impure condition. See, because Isaiah, again, was, was used to the, the, the old covenant, the first covenant, the law of Moses. And, and the, the temple and the Holy of Holies and, and all the guidelines that God had laid out about his presence. And, and, and again, God's presence was something to be feared. Because when the wrong people, or if you hadn't been purified in the right way or done the right sacrifices, if you went into the Holy of Holies or if you, you messed with the Ark of the Covenant in the wrong way, it would kill you. Again, not because God's presence is bad. In fact, it's quite the opposite. Because God's presence is so good that it exposes our, our sin. And just as Scripture tells us, right, the wages of sin is death. And that's what would happen in the presence of God. And that was feared if they weren't atoned for correctly through the law, and through the sacrifices and the altar and, and all the things that they're told to do in, the, in the, the first covenant. And this is what's running through Isaiah's mind. He, he, because according to the law, right, impurity was transferred to them by the world, by touch. If they were ever in the, in the touch, like blood or, or bodily fluids or a dead body or, or any of these things, there was a whole list of things that would make them impure. And, and through the touch, they would, be, they would lose their, their purity, their way to come to God. And so they would have to sacrifice more, right, to be re-atoned for. They were instructed on how to sacrifice and to get purified so they could enter into God's presence. And we see this is exactly Isaiah's response in verse 5. Right? As he says, it's all over, I'm doomed, for I am a sinful man. I have filthy lips, and I live among people with filthy lips. Yet I have seen the king, the Lord of heaven's armies. And again, he realizes the weight of what's happening. I'm in God's presence, and I'm sinful. But then, the next thing that happens is, as he acknowledges his own impure state, Right, then the seraphim does something odd, something weird. He goes over, he takes a coal off the altar, right? This, this burning coal that is, that is full of God's purity. And he goes over to Isaiah and he touches him on the lips with this coal. And what happens in that moment is the opposite of what Isaiah knew to be true. Because Isaiah knew, right, that 
that, that by touch make you impure. And yet, right now, this burning coal represents God's purity. And now what Isaiah couldn't do on his own, what he hadn't done on his own to make himself pure through the law, right? God now extends the touch and God touches him and makes him pure. This is the first time in scripture we ever see where God's purity wears off on, or by touch goes onto something that is impure, right? Up to this point, everything of an impurity, it goes the other way. You touch and it gets, then you have to be purified. And yet here, now God's effort moves forward. And through God's purity and is now transferred to Isaiah through touch. In this moment, God does the opposite of what Isaiah knew to be true. And we learn in this moment that how the old covenant has failed. And so now God is doing something new. The old covenant failed, so now God is going to do something new. Again, this vision is a foreshadow of God's plan of redemption. Of how God will, will usher in a new covenant. It is a glimpse into this new covenant and how it's going to work. Of the new covenant of grace, right? Which is be ushered in by the Messiah. The old covenant was based on human effort. But this new covenant is about God's effort. The old covenant brought judgment. But the new covenant will bring grace. The old covenant, God's presence was something to be feared because it brought death. But in the new covenant, God's presence will bring life. It will bring restoration, transformation, and freedom. As we are set free by Jesus, by the blood of the Lamb. As we see here, again in verse 7, God, God tells Isaiah the good news, right? He says that he touched my lips with it and, and said, see, this coal has touched your lips. Now your guilt is removed and your sins are forgiven. Well, that's a pretty good place to be, isn't it? Your guilt is removed and your sins are forgiven. That's, that's the results of salvation right that, that was the mission of the messiah right was was to provide this same thing for for all of creation because what's happening here is isaiah comes in and, and in the presence knowing that he shouldn't be there because he's impure and god says you know what i will i'll step in and i'll accomplish what you can't do on your own what the old covenant fell short in doing and god extends his arm and and he he purifies isaiah and in doing that God fixes the broken relationship because now Isaiah is in God's unhindered presence right? and he's transformed. He is set free by God's presence. And now once the relationship has been restored, right? his sins have been forgiven, his guilt is removed, now he is, is, can be in God's presence. And once that relationship has been restored, then we start a whole new journey. Once that relationship with God has been restored, then we start a whole new journey. Our lives can now move in a new direction. And that's exactly what happens when you pray and receive Christ as your Savior. As Scripture tells us, when you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth, then you are saved. When you receive Christ, invite him into your life and receive that, the same 
you know, purifying forgiveness that Isaiah experienced in this vision is where you are truly set free. And at that moment of salvation, when you join that journey of faith, that, then you start in a whole new direction. And notice the next thing that happens for Isaiah in this vision in verse 8. He says, Then I heard the Lord asking, Whom should I send as a messenger to this, to this people? Who will go for us? And I said, Here I am. Send me. Now this is an incredibly powerful verse as well. Okay, one, we need to realize right, that Isaiah didn't hear God's voice until he had been purified. Right, until that moment, he was focused on himself. And then once he was purified by God, then he started to hear God's voice. Okay, and as he heard God's voice, once he did hear it, right, then God told him that there was work to be done. And then we see Isaiah's response. As God says, I, I have this message that needs to be taken. I need somebody to take it. Who will do it? And, and then Isaiah responds right, with this very famous phrase, here I am, send me. Again, Isaiah volunteers. Or say, God, as I hear your presence, I've been made new by you. And, and now that our relationship is restored, now, I, now the work starts and I am willing to do it, God. He raises his hand. He says, God, I'm, I'm your guy. And this phrase, this statement of, of here I am, send me, is a statement of complete surrender to God's plan. Right? This is when Isaiah says, yeah, okay, Lord, whatever you want, I'll do it. Whatever you want. And then in the following verses, once Isaiah is at this place of fully surrendering to God's plan, in verses 9 through 15, God describes the job that he needs him to do. And it's not an easy job. Okay, God tells him, hey, you're going to go to these people. You're going to give this message, right, of, of this song and, and of, of what's coming. And, and by the way, they're not going to listen to you. They're not going to accept it. In fact, they're going to get pretty mad at you. And, and this is going to be a, a tough job, Isaiah. Because you are bringing a, a message of judgment. And yet, as God describes everything that Isaiah needs to do through these verses, we, though, end up at the very last part of verse 13. Right? As, this all, as God describes this, this hard, hard assignment, this very tough thing that Isaiah is going to have to do. And then at the end of 13... God says, but as a terebinth or oak tree leaves a stump when it's cut down, so Israel's stump will be a holy seed. Now this, again, as God says, he's like, again, he's like, my job, your job, Isaiah, is to tell Isaiah that they are being judged, that they're going to be cut down, they're, they're going to be conquered, they're going to be killed, they're going to be exiled, they're, they're going to go through some very hard times over the coming years. But yeah, at, at the end of this process, at the, at the end of what we have to do, right, there will be a, a, a seed left in the stump, and, and that seed will be pure. It will be holy. It will be a restart. And as, as Israel goes through this purification process, he's like, then what's left? Now we can move on to a new season, because get, guess what the new season is for Israel? It's sending the Messiah. 
out of this holy seed coming out of the stump that is left after all of this happens right, is the line of Jesus. It's the fulfillment of this foreshadow of this vision, right, of where God sends the Messiah and, and, and ushers in the new covenant of grace. And this is that moment, right, when God is telling Isaiah, this is not an easy job that I'm sending you to do, but Isaiah just never questioned the fact that it will be absolutely be worth it. This is going to be a tough job, but it's worth it. So keep going. Is this going to be a hard season? Absolutely. But it's also going to be worth it. And when we look at our lives and our own faith journey, does, does God take us through hard seasons? Right? Is there things that we have to deal with and face and, and stuff when, when it's not easy following Jesus? It's not. That is one of the things I love about the God of the Bible is that God tells us the truth. Is following Jesus easy? No. But it's worth it. It's not easy but it is absolutely worth it. And when we look at, at, at this, this overall process, this journey that God reveals to Isaiah through this vision, okay, we see all of these, these different steps that God took them through. Right? We see this journey. Of, of, for we start with letting God show you where you really are. And then acknowledging our impure state, seeing the, the reality of, of where we are and how impure we are and how we need a Savior. And then we receive God's grace and we accept that purification. And once the relationship is fixed, then we can hear God's voice and, and God, God tells us what we need to do. And then we, we're able to fully surrender our life to God's will and to God's way, just like Isaiah did. And, and then we have to trust that the tough, narrow road is worth it. And we just keep going down our journey as we walk with Jesus. And when we look at this, this journey, this, this plan, these steps that God took Isaiah through, and, and we realize that, that this is the same path that we take in our salvation experience. As God foreshadows the, the gospel through this experience with Isaiah, right? this is the same journey we must go on to find salvation, and to be restored to our relationship with God through the death and resurrection and acceptance of Jesus. Again, I don't know if you've ever received Christ your Savior before, if you've never again, gone through this and, and acknowledged your own impure state and, and received God's grace and accepted his, his, his grace and his mercy and his forgiveness and invited him into your life. If you've never received Christ your Savior before, I hope that you will do that today. Do just as scripture tells us to do. You just leave in your heart, confess with your mouth, and you are saved. And yet we see that, that this process absolutely is the process of salvation, but it's not just the process of salvation. Right? This is also a, a, an ongoing process that we must go through to continue to grow in our faith. Right? Even once we join the journey of faith and receive Christ as our Savior, then we start that whole new journey of growing and becoming more like Christ. And this same process needs to go over and uh, through our lives over and over and over again as we take new ground, as we move closer to Christ and grow in our faith of acknowledging where I really am, 
letting God show me that, opening my eyes, right? Seeing my impure state, receiving God's grace of, and acceptance purification. Then I, then I can hear God's voice and he takes me somewhere new as I fully surrender to his will and his way and I don't give up because it's worth it. Right? And, and as we see this process, this journey, right, this is also a process that repeats time and time again in my life as I am transformed by God's spirit and become more and more like Christ every day. So I don't know where you're at in your journey today. Maybe, maybe you've never received Christ your Savior, and if, if you haven't, I hope you'll pray and receive him today. But even if you have accepted Christ as your Savior, I, I would ask you, where are you at in this process right now? Right, what, what does God need to open your eyes to? Right, what, what do you need to receive God's grace for? Can you be purified and made new all over again? Can you, you be faithful to what God's leading you to do? Are you fully surrendered? Again, whatever the next step is in your journey, I hope that you will take it today. Which leads me to my final thought today, and that is this. God does not promise that a life surrendered to him will be easy, but it will be worth it. So where are you at on the journey, and will you take the next step? I hope you'll take the next step today. Lord God, we praise you, God, that our earth is filled with your glory. God, that just as Isaiah saw in that vision, Lord, your presence is with us. And God, that we have been purified by the blood of Jesus and we can be in your presence. And we praise you for that today. And God, I ask that, Lord, as we acknowledge who you are, Lord, as we can be forgiven by you, God, that you would rise us to a new life. You would lead us in a new direction. God, that we would go places in our faith that we've never been before. God, as you open our eyes to to what you've really done for us, God, and that you've set us up for success because you love us, Lord. We thank you for that. Lord, as we go this week, God, help us to live out our faith every day. God, that we can show this world who you really are, Lord, through our our own life and our own faith. You will shine your light, God, in this dark world. And God, that we can all be ushered into your presence just like Isaiah was. Lord, we love you. We praise you. We thank you for being with us no matter what we face. Lord, we thank you for telling us the truth. God, lift us up from where we are. Pull us out of the pit and keep us out of that pit, Lord. Guide us as we go, as we live at our faith every day, as we truly are your church in this dark world. Guide us as we go in Jesus' name. Amen.